Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. I've promised some hardcore engineering and science today, and I'm going to deliver. So when you think about the most dangerous places around uh, in relation to fire safety, these are not really shopping malls, airports, or car parks, or skyscrapers, or whatever we are used to. The most dangerous place is most like your home. And in fact, most of the fatalities of the fires come from household fires. We don't get to talk that much about them. I mean, even if you look at this podcast, it's episode 59, and I guess this is the first one really dedicated fully to residential fires. I mean, podcast is obviously a biased representation of the fire science view through my eyes, but uh, still it's a representation and uh, there, there is no accident in, in that residential fires were not brought here so much because it's not an area that uh, would focus so many researchers over the world. But it is research. It is it is researched by great people. And I have some of the best of them today in this show to, to talk about this important uh, issue. My guests today are Dan Majikowski from UL Fire Safety Research Institute, a legend of the field of firefighters research and residential fire safety. And I was quite lucky because Dan had a nice guest hosted at his home. And that was uh, Professor Charlie Fleischman from University of Canterbury. So I actually got the chance to talk to them both about the issues related to how the fire environment of homes has changed over the years. What are the problems now from the perspective of homeowner and also from the perspective of the firefighter? I hope it will be interesting to you and there's a lot of things that we need to consider thinking about residential fire safety. And I guess many learnings of this episode will go to all areas of fire safety as we touch just a lot of fundamental fire physics with a lot of great examples brought to you by some of the greatest minds of fire safety. So without further ado, let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski, and I will be your host. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fire Science Show. Today is the Father Day, and I've received a gift. Uh, instead of one legend, I got two. So please let me introduce my today's guest. Uh, first, from UL Fire Safety Research Institute, Dan Majikowski. Dan, it's uh, such a huge pleasure to have you in the show. Thank you for the invitation. Looking forward to having our discussion. Absolutely thrilled for you to become the part of the show and and a surprise guest, but very, very welcome. Uh, uh, an old friend from Canterbury, Professor Charlie Fleischman. Charlie, hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm just sort of a hanger on. That's okay. You can hang around in here. I mean, if you were home, we would have podcast recording under which the sun does not set. <laughs> but that's a very, very nice addition. And actually, uh, your knowledge fits perfectly to the topic. And the topic is residential fire safety. So first, let me build up the need for this particular podcast episode. Some time ago, I had interviewed Professor Babrowskis in the podcast and as one of the key um, missing points in fire science, he've mentioned insufficient research on residential fire safety and residential fires and all the things associated with that. And I thought, well, there's UL doing a lot of research on that, so I need to tap into UL mind and 
and Dan is is like number one guy there doing residential home fire safety. Um, and I know it's, it is important for you guys, but uh, I would love to understand why it is important for you all. So, so Dan, maybe you could, as a good uh, starting point, tell me why residential fire safety is such an important part of the UL mission. Why do you guys research it? So well, much? in the U.S., uh, based on our data, um, most of the fire fatalities occur in homes. They occur where people should feel the safest. So approximately 80 to 85 percent of the fire fatalities in the U.S. occur in people's homes and could be in apartment buildings, townhouses or single family homes. So that that's a big driver. Uh, I listen to Vito's podcast and Vito's not wrong in terms of, you know, where some of the where we're putting a lot of effort. There's a lot of research going into digital twins of buildings, as, uh, as Charlie and I were discussing. and and all this sort of thing. And it's basically being focused on occupancies where currently we don't really have a high fire loss problem. They're already covered by sprinklers, good passive fire protection, uh, in many cases, active fire protection in terms of smoke control and and, uh, automatic door closers and things like that. So, you know, do we really need more research and artificial intelligence to help us there? And the, the real problem is, We have a very large housing stock. What can we do if we're going to use a technology? What can we do to retrofit that technology? Or are we better suited to make the occupants smarter, to give them better information on what they can do, how they can protect themselves? Do we work on prevention? Do we work on self-rescue? How can we help the fire service be more efficient with today's fire environment? So, Certainly more can be done in that area. We can always use better data in what's causing the fires and how the fires are occurring, uh, again, to kind of track that down. We are getting some data, and the data we're currently getting shows us that people charging lithium-ion batteries in their homes is becoming a, uh, a growing hazard, um, whether it's uh, mm. charging batteries that were parts of tools or whether it's charging e-scooters or e-bikes, we're seeing a trend in the U.S. uh, where those fires are happening more and more often. Wow. I was, you know, preparing to this episode, I was thinking a lot about it. Like, it is in a one-way evident, like no matter what part of the world you look there, that the statistics would say the same. The house is the most likely place you die in a fire. Charlie, is this the same in in New Zealand, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I, as far as I know, Absolutely. in every developed country, I would say almost every country that it's in, it's in their own home. And we also have the problem of, you know, social inequality. And I, I had Danielle Antonellis from Kindling in the episode. They're dealing a lot with like uh, things like uh, informal settlements, but you don't have to go to informal settlements to see the issue that some people who are economically under underprivileged, uh, they, they obviously are often associated with a higher fire risk. So, so there is an obvious like, risk area in terms of residential fires. And if you think about it, why do we research like tunnels or skyscrapers? I think it is well connected to the fact that we have real means to touch these items. Like if I do research on tunnels and it turns to be a part of a code, the tunnels will be built to that code. And I have like I have a direct link between my research and the outcome in terms of safety, even if it is a small incremental improvement of safety of facility that was safe already. Whereas if you think about residential homes, like it is so hard. It, it like it is so hard to have an impact 
between we researchers do not have a direct link to people who build houses. It is very difficult to go and put any prescriptive or performance-based rule out there that would influence the way how people build because it's perceived as their freedom to build. In Poland, it is like that. In US, the country of freedom and amendments, <laughs> I guess it, it is. <laughs> it is. It must be the same. I would not uh, believe it's otherwise. So the number one reason, I, I think, is, is the lack of this feeling that I can really change things. And, and you guys, and you all, you've been doing that for 30 years. So maybe you have a pathways. Let's just give it a structure. I, I, there would be two places I distinguish. One, that being the homeowner and the person who's most likely to die in an event of a fire in my home. And second, the, the firefighter perspective, which let's talk in the second part of the episode, how to deal with the modern challenges of modern housing and residential from the perspective of firemen. So so reaching owners, like, is there a way to do it? Do you, do you guys have a, a key to do it? I mean, we're, we're trying to use our social media outlets, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or our webpage or Instagram. And we've developed some, uh, I guess you'd call them public service announcements, if you will, to generate some awareness. So one of the things that we did 10 years ago, and we recently redid it, was a comparison of natural fuels burning in a room versus everyday fuels that we have today. So comparing a sofa that has uh, cotton upholstery with uh, steel springs in the cushions and things like that versus a modern sofa or a current day sofa, if you will. And when I say current day, the construct these started to come into the marketplace in large numbers in the late in the 70s, 80s, 90s. So they've been around almost 50 years. Uh, but the polyurethane foam, uh, the construction methods continue to evolve. The foam can get less dense, but still be resilient and very useful and whatnot. So you can have a sofa that weighs on the order of, you know, maybe 43 kilograms or so, roughly 100 pounds, and it can give off a peak heat release rate in the range of four to five megawatts. And it can generate that peak heat release rate in about three minutes. So if you have that in a residential home and uh, you've got ventilation to it through open windows or open door, that means that that can generate a post flashover environment or flashover a room in that home in that same kind of time frame, less than three to five minutes kind of time frame. So um, that's sort of a big change. If you look at how the cotton sofa burns when it's ignited with an open flame, it hits a peak heat release rate of maybe 300 kilowatts and it burns for an hour. And if it can generate enough energy to ignite other things in the room to generate a flashover, that process, from what we've seen for the four or five times that we've done it, takes on the order of 25 minutes to 40 minutes. So the mm. if the firefighters show up to that fire, they have more time to respond to it, certainly. And that fire is going to be less reactive to the introduction of extra oxygen because it's not going to be as vent-limited or fuel-rich, perhaps. Still could be post-flashover, but again, it... It seems like a friendlier fire, if you will, in terms of how it responds to people moving about, people leaving, people having time to leave, and then the fire's uh, tactics to it. So what we have in our homes has changed pretty dramatically over time. Um, and so we've been trying to point that out to homeowners. And that is with, with this public demonstration tool that you're driving on a truck and, and showing like uh, this 
old house and new new house compartments and by showing the images like which are very visual very like with the timer i i saw there, there's videos on youtube they're great you you can truly show okay this is three minutes into the fire look this sofa on the left is barely burning on the right you have a raging inferno in your house so is this message reaching the, the public? I think that people are still surprised uh, at how fast a fire can grow in their home. Yeah. So I, it is having an impact. It is having an effect. Uh, then we're trying to give them actionable items. Now, yeah. some people have the means or the ability to go out and buy smoke alarms. So that is certainly mm-hmm. an important message to get that early warning uh, so that you, you can leave. I thought it was interesting commentary from Vito that he was remembering Bud Levin and mm-hmm. and John Bryan, of course, and saying, yeah, the initial response of people is not to leave, but to figure out why the smoke alarm's going off, right? And in many cases, going toward the yeah. fire. So that's got to be accounted for. But one of the messages, something that is actionable for everybody, uh, if they're you know mobile and can move around, and that's closing the door to isolate. If they can't get out of the house, if they can't make a safe exit, there may be a place where they can protect themselves in the home, protect themselves from heat, from smoke, from toxic gas by isolating themselves from the flow path and give the firefighters time to come and rescue them. So you're actually framing a very complex and sophisticated research into design fires, into human response, into actionable items, like understand that the environment is completely different than you may have had in your head. For, uh, that there is simple items like smoke sensor that can truly change the your chances and and there's simple things you can do like closing the doors that will completely seal or, or change the, the outcomes of the fire that's brilliant because these are things that you can work on you've mentioned i i love how you immediately went into burning items because that's what our us fire scientists do the sofa example is great, but Charlie, maybe you can give me the number two worst item at your house. That's <laughs> that's that has changed over thirty years. <laughs> well, I don't think it's changed over thirty years. But if you look at the statistics, um, yeah. a lot of fires start in kitchens. Yeah, and I mean, in the New Zealand example, they ran a a campaign, and again, a lot of it's mm-hmm. about educating people. But they found that sort of these young adult males were actually had statistically a greater, I guess, or a disproportionate number of fatalities. And that was they'd come home at night, often having been out, and they would put on their chip pan to deep fry French fries or chips, as they call them in New Zealand, and they'd have a kitchen fire. So beyond the furniture, another area where I think we could potentially make some gains is looking at dealing with kitchen fires. And I know NIST has been doing some studies in that area. And it's another area where I think we need to focus on is coming up with creative ways, possibly extinguishment, but that's a bit, there's all sorts of issues around that. But the kitchen fire is another area I think we need to spend some time focusing on. And how about these fires that occur when you're not supervising? Like I would guess kitchen fire, okay, that's, that's a crazy idea of not supervising your pan on, but it happened. It actually happened to me once. Yeah. Didn't transfer into a big fire, but I, I confirm it's not very hard to set your pan on fire. However, there are things happening in your house when you're unsupervising them. Like Dan before mentioned, well, charging lithium-ion batteries. That is an excellent example of how the world is changing because like, 
10, 20 years ago, I would be charging my Nokia phone and I probably could destroy a fire throwing it on, on, with, the, with the Nokia phone. It was indestructible and didn't really burn. Then uh, I, I was charging my laptops and um, it's a bigger threat. Now people are charging their scooters at home or much bigger battery items. So do you see any other like changes which need immediate research on safety? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm pretty scared about photovoltaics too. And I don't mean the panels necessarily. The panels are a separate item, but uh, you know, the, the energy must be transported by wires and there's like quite high power electrical units like transformers and uh, frequency inverters and all this sophisticated high power electroenergetic devices. You, suddenly put in your house because you have a small power plant. So, so maybe you have another example of this sort. Or I maybe mean, you want just to a, a similar example, but just to show how relevant it is, I guess, and compounding it is, it, you spoke with Gavin about the uh, exposures on the fire ground. And yeah. one of the projects that we have working right now is looking at post-fire exposures to fire investigators. So this week uh, we've had... Uh, our industrial hygienist that we work with from UL out in the field, traveling with the LA County fire investigators and actually taking measurements at fire scenes uh, that they're working at to sort of get the ground truth to see if the um, work that we do in the lab or in our buildings that we purposely burn and then monitor for five days post fire, are mm -hmm. we catching the right things? Are we replicating reality enough? Mm -hmm. uh, the investigators that we work with, one of their observations or complaints, if you will, is that your test houses are too clean, right? They don't have enough junk. They don't have enough debris. So is there other chemicals hiding in the debris or does it hold it, hold the gases or the hazard longer? And so that's why we're going out in the field to sort of get some ground truth. And just this week, they went to a fire where someone was charging a e-scooter and an e-bike off a single extension cord. The cord overheated, caught fire, and burned the garage down, and the garage contained an electric vehicle car uh, as well. So here they had these three fairly expensive battery-powered modes of transportation. And, you know, I don't know for sure. I'm guessing that they probably had a couple-dollar extension cord. Mm -hmm. And that was the weak link for them. So there may be other messaging that needs to get out. I mean, certainly uh, one manufacturer in the United States has uh, issued a, a uh, alert to anybody that owns their vehicles that they should be electric vehicles, that they should be charging them outside and not charging them in their garage. There are oh. signs being put up on like parking garages that those vehicles are not being allowed to be charged there, uh, those kind of things. So. Uh, there's certainly a lot of response, a lot of work to do. The one thing about the residential environment, as you pointed out, because in some ways of the lack of codes in that you don't need to de develop things for a fire rated assembly for a wall or a floor or things like that, the amount of new construction methods and new materials that are being used uh, in some cases now, very limited, but we're starting to see the use of plastic in support structures for residential homes. And they're applying some protection to it, but again, it doesn't really have to go through any kind of testing because it doesn't have to be a rated assembly. It just has to be demonstrated that it can hold the load. And these are the kind of things that kind of tend, that sort of tend to creep up on society, right? Nobody, it wasn't announced that this is gonna happen. 
And then it just sort of happens. Then over time, the next thing you know, there's trouble. And uh, we've had some things happen, even with uh, well-intended fire protection type of items, where in the U.S., maybe 30 years ago, people wanted to introduce fire retardant plywood into the construction of homes, especially in the use for roof decking in attics. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they found was that the heat in the attic and the combination of the chemicals in the fire retardant caused the plywood to decay. And so after five or 10 years, the plywood no longer was had its structural integrity mm -hmm. and had to be replaced. There was a use of certain kinds of plastics. I think it was polybutylenes maybe in uh, sprinkler systems. And then they had a lot of cracking and leakage. And as a result, then sprinkler systems kind of got a bad reputation that, oh, this is just going to cause leakage in my house and things like that. So it's before we introduce new technologies, I think there's some responsibility to have them investigated or checked out to make sure that there aren't unintended consequences. Yeah, I had this episode, uh, one year anniversary episode of the podcast, when I said the number one skill is communication and by communication, I also mean listening to others. And this is the exact thing. Like if you don't listen to users, if you don't use, listen to their needs and you just deliver a fire safety system that in the end leaks is annoying or <clears throat> loses its its characteristics, it's not going to work and it's going to get bad reputation and it's not going to be used at all. And when you say about this, this plastic in field walls, I believe they have absolutely unearthly thermal insulation statistics. Like they, these things are like magic when you only think in like U factor or, or whatever else you use to determine how warm your, your house is. But if you thought three minute flashover is bad, wait for the five minute collapse. <laughs> like seriously, this is the direction. And Charlie, to you about the physics of fires in compartments. Like in Poland for the last 20 years, we have this trend of plastic windows, sealed out houses where we're turning away from that now into into introducing leakages. But still, we make our homes sealed off the external environment with, from what I understand, changes the physics. They're starting to do it in New Zealand, but they got it out of Europe with the passive houses and sealing those up. There's all sorts of energy advantages But as Dan said, we have unintended consequences of any engineering thing we do, potentially, and we have to look for that. We are trying all over the world to make more energy efficient buildings. Part of that is to reduce the leakage we have out of them. And, but as we do that, we have the pressures go up. And there's been a number of studies you know, that we <clears> talked <throat> about looking at what the effect of that is. But we haven't really started to look at what that does even to the fire physics. And what impact that may have on firefighters. You know, there's that classic case where the firefighters were trapped inside because of an overpressure. But, you know, th there's things there that we still need to, I think, explore. But it's a matter of finding the time and the priorities. And, and as you mentioned here, the human side of it in terms of trying to educate the public, change their behavior, potentially on charging batteries. But we have to find those other issues there that um, we haven't explored. I think by introducing some of these passive technologies, we go out of proportion, you know. We are gaining very little in terms of insulation of the house and we're losing so much in terms of the fire safety of the building. I also wondered like, to what extent higher insulation of the walls. I mean, 
if you go MQH relation or anything, you, you immediately see the outcome of better insulated compartment to the time of flashover or in general, the, the temperatures you reach in fires. I mean, you insulate the fire, so you keep the energy inside instead of, instead of venting it out. And I, I guess as we may transition to the firefighters territory, this like, ventilation aspects of house fires or household fires, residential fires is also probably number one thing for considered by firefighters, right? And uh, did the environment change in the last like 30 years, how the ventilation looks in, in residential houses and what firefighters should adjust their tactics for? It's certainly the, uh, and, the homes have become more fuel rich uh, in terms of the energy content. The synthetics have uh, heats of combustion that are one and a half, uh, perhaps uh, two or two times or more that of uh, some of the natural materials like wood and cotton. So that's uh, that's an issue, as we've been pointing out, for sustainability reasons and energy conservation. Uh, the houses have become more tightly insulated, better windows, so the windows don't fail due to fire as easily. They take require more energy to auto vent, if you will, than they did in the past. Than a single pane window would fail. The dual pane windows take more energy. Uh, so there's a lot of different um, construction features that uh, change how the fire grows as also the hazard inside the home for anyone that's trapped and further how the fire presents itself when the fire department arrives. A uh, ventilation limited fire, firefighters hadn't been taught about that until maybe 10 years ago. Researchers knew it, certainly. Fire protection engineers knew it, but the firefighters were only familiar with the uh, traditional fuel-limited fire growth model, if you will, fuel-controlled. They didn't understand the ventilation-controlled model, and it is different, and it presents itself different ways. So the firefighters might show up on a house with the doors and windows closed and nothing showing at the time they show up. Five minutes earlier, the fire might have been in a growth stage, and it was pushing smoke around every leakage around a door or a window because of the pressure built up in the house. But then it went into an oxygen-depleted decay stage. The heat release rate dropped. The temperature of the gases inside the house decreased. And as a result, the pressure inside the house decreased to the point where the house is under negative pressure relative to atmospheric conditions. And so it's actually sucking air in and not showing any smoke. Or on the opposite side of that coin, the ventilation-limited fire could be presenting itself as flames coming out of a door or a window. So this has uh, been a big education process for the fire service to get that understanding and to understand that also if they have flames out a window, that doesn't mean that there's flames very deep in that structure because it's too fuel rich. And in terms of a survivable space in that structure, especially if people are protecting themselves by closing a door, they need to get in there and search. And then how do we help them search uh, recent work by uh, Keith Stakes and Craig Weinshank, predominantly the whole team, but uh, they're they're the principal leaders of that research. Is that you know getting water on the fire quickly and searching concurrently with that seems to be the best practice. Uh, so there's a lot to learn and understand about how to change the hazard throughout the house as soon as possible. And I know it shouldn't be surprising, but the use of water is a big key to that because. There have been concerns in the past that potentially if the water wasn't used efficiently or effectively, 
you could make conditions worse. And there is some truth to that. So then we need to take that next step and say, well, how do we make sure that we're making efficient use of the water? And I know in in Poland recently, they built one of the uh, fire hose props, fire hose mechanics props. You know, Keith Stakes evolved that and developed that. And as we go around the United States and they're building them and we uh, help people learn how to use them, it's amazing the quick takeaway and sort of the aha moments that people are having when they understand that the significant difference it could make in not only your nozzle choice, but how you decide to move that nozzle. And if you want to make pressure in front of you and push, you could do one way. And if you don't want to push or disturb the environment and just have, introduce a broken stream in the room for maximizing cooling, you handle the nozzle a different way. And I think this is this is a big step forward, I think, for the U.S. And this isn't to say that firefighters didn't know this before, but I just think it's one of those issues where the senior people in the fire service, the senior man, the barn boss, whatever you want to call them, there aren't as many of those people around to share that knowledge anymore. So I think it's neat that uh, we have an opportunity with data behind us that, to measure entrainment, to measure where the water's going, that we can help uh, share those lessons, perhaps on a broader scale through the internet, through our webpage, fsri.org, where we have lesson plans and videos of using this prop, as well as how to build the prop, but also the face-to-face uh, regional meetings around the country are very important. The fact that it's uh, getting to Europe and people are, are utilizing it in Europe and we get, we're getting great feedback from that, that that's fantastic. Okay, so because my listenership is predominantly fire safety engineers and they have no idea about what you mean with the water hose prop, I'll, I'll quickly explain because I found that concept fascinating. We we spend so much time, you know, solving these issues with buildings that we, we've talked in the entry to the episode, but you're touching here a very simple problem, how to push water into buildings so it reaches the place you want it to reach. And the water bounces off windows, bounces off walls, bounces off ceilings. And that's one effect. The second is that when you push water, you're pushing air with it. So you can push water and air outside. You can push water and air inside. You actually control that. And the prop that Dan is mentioning is like literally a transparent compartment where you can play with water, a corridor, a corner, bounce water off things, try to learn how to operate it in the most efficient way so it reaches what you want. You know, the cell phone game everyone played a few years ago, Angry Birds, where you had to bounce the bird out of <laughs> out of things. That's the same thing pretty much. Maybe you should, you should make a video game, Dan, the efficient firefighter or something where people have to learn that. That would be a very efficient way to, to teach people that. But this is this part of you know, knowledge, research, uh, experience that we need first to know. We have to understand, like papers by Craig and and colleagues from UL, this is giving the physics background or why is that important? Like they've solved or maybe they are solving the ultimate question, is early water better or worse for the fire outcomes? And based on that knowledge, when they have the answer, the scientific answer to the question, they can train people on how to do that efficiently to reach their objectives. So this is the brilliant, you see, you know, you see, this is the missing point I've mentioned in the beginning of the episode, the missing link between the researcher 
and the outcomes. And I find it fascinating that you guys are doing the research and you're going further to spread the knowledge. I'll link the videos to this prop training in the show notes so anyone can take a look. And this is really interesting to see what are the on the ground problems firefighters are battling with or what what are the on ground issues in firefighting. Um, You've also mentioned about this, the physics of the environment in the fire that are occurring may be unnoticed by the firemen. Like when they arrive, it can be in a phase where it already flashed over and, and oxygen starved or something, and they may not know that. So I, I think that the number one, if you think fire safety engineering education, there is this plot with uh, temperature rising, ah, this there's flashover, then the, that's, that's, if, if you did statistics, that's probably the plot everyone sees the most during their education. And it doesn't tell a full story, it doesn't tell a quarter of a story, so I kind of hate it. Uh, and with the thing you, you've said, it leads to some very potentially dangerous, um, you've used the word in the, in the green room, pressure events or pressure, um, over pressure, smoke expo- yeah. oh, over pressure events. Yeah, exactly. And Charlie, I remember your name in the nineties with backdrafts and, and explosions. So, so it's like, I've asked you, what are you doing in the U S and you said smoke explosions. So ah, I need to talk about that. So, so. How did the environment in the residential housing change to promote this? Or well, you talked about the energy, you know, change improvements yeah. and sealing the building up. I mean, if you think of it, our what I refer to as our typical model or vision of a fire is, as you said, you know, fire grows, flashes over, you get flames out the openings, but you know, and we break windows and that sort of thing. But now we're going with multi-pane low E coatings that delay all of that. So now we've got these semi-sealed boxes that we have a fire in. And Dan mentioned earlier about you get, you know, the fire grows, maybe gets close to flash over, maybe it gets there locally, but then runs out of air. So then somebody, the fire service comes in, opens a door, and to a certain extent, their knowledge is probably as somewhat as far behind as ours is. You know, fire engineers are still sort of stuck in this typical fire growth, but we're now saying that it is very different. And that's what this smoke explosion is sort of starting to try to understand what happens in these boxes where we have severely ventilation limited conditions. But then you bring the ventilation with the fire service and you've got a potentially very dangerous situation. You you know, you can have this unburned fuel sitting there. You bring the oxygen with you one way or another. That's your backdraft sort of thing. But we're seeing where maybe somebody hasn't opened it up and the place just blows up. Or in some cases, you'll end up with, you know, a a large building going, the fire's at one end and it blows up at the other end. So we're trying to understand that what I would say atypical fire growth, things we don't see all that often, Although I do wonder whether with our changes to buildings, more energy efficient, better sealed, low E coatings and everything else, if we're going to see an increase in these events as we go forward. So that's why we're trying to understand it. Yeah, to what extent the traditional fire becomes the exotic fire and mm-hmm. and the exotic fires become the traditional fires. And that's, uh, <laughs> th- that's a hell of a challenge. And f- from your experience, is there... 
do the usual things to read out this pressure phenomenon. I've been taught that if you see smoke pulsating, touch the knob, is it hot or not? Uh, I'm not a firefighter, so, so please excuse me if I'm saying dangerous stuff. But do, do you see these things work or is it even more exotic and more unexpected than before? Wow, that's, I mean, we do see the pulsing, you know, and in fact, that's yeah. one of the things that we look for in the experiments in these exploratory work. And you see it happen, but, you know, and we think we kind of understand the physics of that, but then you start seeing it in conditions that you don't necessarily understand. And so we're just, we're trying to see if those old indicators actually ever really existed. Okay. And there's some evidence that they do, you know, the pulsing has been seen in a number of cases. The hot doorknob has been something that people talked about for years, but there's all sorts of conditions that could lead to that. But it's there's a lot we don't understand. And these old, I guess, what I would call old wise tales, we're trying to see whether or not they're they're real. And one of the ways we're doing that is to work toward being able to recreate these events so that we can then start to ask those questions because we need to do the researchers seems to be a number of different conditions that can happen. And we're just, you know, at, at this point trying to understand. <clears throat> so I think the most common is the fire sort of goes into a state, may almost even burn out, and it becomes a relatively minor event. But we're seeing in a certain number of cases where we get what are very horrific events, a rapid release of energy, whether that's just a big push of smoke or whether it ends up, being a smoke explosion where the building appears to just essentially explode itself? Or is it something like a backdraft where the firefighters have changed the ventilation and they get stuck because they've gotten into the building when this thing lets go? I mean, YouTube is full of a number of videos that you can see. The problem is all you see is one side of the building. It's a short slice. You have no details about the building, how it was built. If, I mean, some of these are old buildings, so they've been remodeled or renovated and that sort of thing. And we're sort of behind because by the time it hits YouTube, it's all over. The building's not there. We don't get an opportunity to look at it and understand it. And do, do you see a dependency in like the terms of in what compartment or what building it can happen? I remember there was this PhD thesis in Edinburgh under supervision of Ricky Carvel. I think the, I, I see the guy was named Wu Chalung, and they they did investigate critical factors on when backdraft happens. So so I wondered, like, what you say is not necessarily always backdraft; can be some sort of smoke explosion, some pressure event. So, do you see any type of residential structures that promote it more than others, or maybe some critical parameters? I always like to think about height as my critical parameter. Whatever I build, I build it high now because it's so, so much safer for some reasons. But we did some work for the National Institute of Justice, uh, work on fire patterns. So it's interesting how all these things kind of interlock and overlay. And um, we did a two-story uh, house that had a two-story great room in the rear and a yep. open foyer, two-story foyer in the front. So it's a open floor plan design home. And then the bedrooms are upstairs and they're compartmented and kind of connected by a bridge that goes between the great room and the, the two-story foyer. So starting a fire in the uh, living room furniture in the rear of the two-story great room builds a very rapid hot gas layer uh, 16 feet above or on the top of the second floor pushing down. And then as it pushes down, 
it acts like a piston. And we end up having an uh, overpressure event at the front door. That was our only opening at that for that experiment, where for about 90 seconds, we had that door was acting as a full exhaust because there was enough oxygen within the space to enable uh-huh. that room yeah. to transition to flashover, or at least almost through flashover, if you will, before it runs out of air in commercials. So we're seeing that in the residential, uh, big pressure buildups like that if we don't have a lot of ventilation. And then, of course, once it's consumed that air uh, that's in the house, and now the door is the only exhaust and intake, we have bidirectional flow, uh, then we have a condition where now the heat release rate is metered by the amount of air that can get in that doorway, the lower part of that doorway. So it's still very hazardous inside, don't get me wrong, in terms of temperature, residual temperatures, and uh, low oxygen concentrations, and high amounts of CO, but the amount of burning that can actually take place is less. So then the next thing what will happen is if you have final windows or something like that, then they soften, the window panes drop out, and then we have other flow paths that are set up and the fire can get bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually consume the house. But what we're seeing, so that's on a residential scale. On a commercial scale, we're seeing some things like that. In instance, like in LA City where 12 firefighters were burned, flames came out unidirectionally out of a door for about 30 seconds and they traveled, they extended 20 feet. In one of the strip mall experiments that was conducted for our coordinated fire attack project, we had an overpressure event about three and a half minutes after ignition where a uh, large area with only one ventilation opening transitioned to flashover and pushed smoke about 70 feet horizontally out of that opening. We see some in a bowling alley in New York uh, had a fire that, again, large open area that resulted in overpressure pushing out. So we're trying to understand these events as well. There have been a, a couple of smoke explosions, one in Portland, uh, Oregon, fortunately, a couple of firefighters, minor injuries only, and one in New York, where basically they had a building that was composed of a number of restaurants and different shops, but it was the size of a city block. And they were working on this fire. The fire had auto-vented by the time they got there. It was burning through the roof. They had, for all intents and purposes, knocked the fire down. And then 40 minutes later, oof, so where was it hiding? What was it doing? And, and all that sort of thing. So those are some of the things Charlie and I are trying to get a little bit more insight into on our when we can squeeze free time in on the weekends. Father's Day. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. That's nice hobby. I sign for that. Like count me in. But uh, you're scaring the hell out of me with this internal um, uh, pressure events because you know even for like simple things like corridor fire safety and. I'm venturing back to the world that I know, which is like commercial buildings and buildings equipped with safety systems. You know, how reliant is our strategies for ventilation, the corridors to the fact if the doors are closed or open or, and what happens in this like 60 seconds that we assume the doors are still closed. And when you say there may be a pressure event, uh, venting the flames into the corridor because they are, amount of air inside is enough to sustain combustion and uh, windows are so tight there's no alternative flow path that is that is not something i consider in my design uh, or safety strategy for the building for sure and i appreciate you guys are researching this aspects of, of fire safety 
Okay, I think we're we're reaching towards the end of the time allocated for this. I, I'm the last thing standing between you and setting fire to some smoke and exploding <laughs> it. <laughs> I don't I don't want to to keep you waiting for that. But I think the world of of residential fire and the research needs is is vast and important. And maybe you, you have a young a message that we could give to like young scientists who would be like thinking about their, the topics of their PhDs and trying to set foot in fire safety. How to push people to do research that is relevant and useful to the white society even. And is it worth it? Like, do you feel accomplished then by doing exactly that for like the whole of your career? Let's try to push people into this field of research. Unless you don't recommend them, no. No, 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 no. It's, uh... Uh, certainly fire research has, you know, been a very attractive career for me. I've had a lot of opportunities to do a wide range of things, whether it was uh, investigating fires in the oil fields of Kuwait or post-earthquake fires in Kobe, Japan, or now we're looking at building the building fire spread in the United States. Things that I think have been categorized as wooey typically, but now maybe we're seeing some events that indicate uh, maybe wooey has nothing to do with it. It's the houses are really close together and you get one on fire and there's a wind and you're going to lose a neighborhood. So, you know, a lot of different challenges there. But I think the, the main thing, which is a core to the, I think, the Fire Safety Research Institute philosophy. And part of that is doing research with your stakeholders. For a lot, a big portion of my career, I was doing research for someone. I was doing research for the fire service, or I was doing research that might help fire protection engineers. But the reality was, while I was doing that research, I wasn't talking to any of them, nor were any of my leadership. And the big transition point in my career, I think, in in many ways, is when we started to do research with the fire service and talk to them and have them on the fire ground. When we're in Chicago, we're burning a 15-story building, and we have them We have a little bit of pizza and a little bit of beer the night before and tell them what we're planning to do and the chiefs that are going to be running the cruise the next day, how they can help us. And they didn't talk too much the first night. They're a little hesitant, not sure what they're getting into with the the engineers and the scientists. But then after the first day of testing, we did it again and sat down and over a meal and talked a little bit. And then they had a lot of ideas. Well, like, why are you doing this? Because we would use this stair for evacuation and this stair for suppression. And we wanted, we would do this and this. And then we modified our experiments because at the end of the day, we want to have data that they can use and they can apply. And I think the same thing is true for homeowners. The same thing is true for if you're doing work with, to help fire protection engineers. You need to understand what their needs are. You need to work with them. And what you will find is when you start those discussions, Uh, that the number of topics that need research uh, goes up exponentially and you realize that there's just not enough time. So one of of my other missions is we're trying to grow the size of our staff uh, because we only have so many weekends and uh, and it's just not enough. It's just not enough time. And uh, maybe you transition to four day work week. So your weekends are 50% longer. You can work. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of young people out there in the universities right now coming out of school. Uh, they've got an incredible set of talents uh, in terms of programming and coding 
and they're learning about fire. And uh, we're fortunate that through our fellows program with the University of Maryland, that we can support some of those going through their master's degree and now uh, working on a PhD. Uh, we also have, uh, now's the time when we have our summer students in. And uh, so it's, it's good to see the talent that's out there and the passion. And so if we can help grow their passion for this field of study, then they'll continue on. And that's a person that's in it for the next 40 years. So uh, that's that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> and Charlie, the next generation that's growing in Canterbury, are, are they going into residential fire safety or you're just pushing them into places where they will earn a lot of money? <laughs> well, I don't want to be hard on consultants, but if they didn't have <laughs> students so many jobs, it'd be easier to get people to go into research and that sort of thing. Yeah, But I mean, absolutely. my <laughs> message to people is, I mean, somebody early on in my career, as I was finishing, he said the job of every fire engineer is to create more jobs in fire engineering because the need is there. We just need to get people educated in. But I mean, yeah. you've led us through a discussion today, and we probably listed 20 topics that out that, that we need to know more about. That we and each could be a fantastic PhD. And there's probably, I mean, there's thousands out there that can be done. And I talk to students, I teach, you know, a first year course of 600, and they talk about other, you know, I want to go write apps for phones. I want to go build robots. I want to do this thing in sustainability. But the thing to tell them is fire is not dead. There's a lot we don't know. And the yeah. whole issue of unintended consequences is we make our buildings more energy efficient and everything else. We just need to get the message out there. And your listeners are some of our best ambassadors out there. They all know young people who are thinking about going into something in their field. Better yet, talk to them when they're, before they start high school so that they start to do the math and the science that they need. A lot of them have that interest, but we just need to guide more people there. We need to get them into universities Because as Dan says, it's a very interesting career. There's some hugely interesting topics, but it doesn't appear on most kids' radar. So we need to promote the industry. And that comes from all of us, you know, to get yep. more people in there. I learn every day what I don't know. Okay. Mm, and yeah. unfortunately, that's getting much bigger as I get older. <laughs> and there's so it's, it's growing quicker. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And we just need to get more people into it. And as I say, that's all of our problem. Talk to young kids that you know and let them face it. Most of us, if not all of us, played with fire as a kid. That's probably the first you know, self-guided experiment that anybody does in their life. And yeah. we just need to, I'm sorry to use a pun, reignite their interest in fire to get them to go to university and study it. And then they can go into the research side. Because that's an area, you know, we need to continue to expand. Yeah, I also believe strongly in giving back and do, spending time on this podcast is my way of giving back to the community that gave me so much and profession that gave me so much. And I also think there's a lot of engineering companies, you know, there's a thing with, with skilled fire safety engineers who, who've been in 20 years of design. They see things differently. You can look at the compartments of your house and immediately see some threats that, that people would not see. And I, I believe in companies, it's great that you're involved in hundreds of commercial projects and so on, but maybe give your employees like 10% of their 
work week to work on some passion project, maybe related to changing fire safety of residential housing, employing the knowledge they now have, because they're in this very unique place where it's either them or, or no one in the world will do that because no one has these capabilities. And by this way, giving back, you can make a difference. And it, it's, I, I connect this a lot to the mission of Fire Safety Research Institute, like putting a lot of effort to communicate with stakeholders, to give to work with them and, and g- give it back. It also goes to you guys uh, sitting here on a nice weekend, uh, <laughs> preparing to, to burn house to understand better how we can protect the next one. So I think this is a, a very nice way to, to finish this out. And I'm very thankful for what you guys are doing. And I'm certainly going to continue what I'm doing here. So g- gentlemen, uh, fire lighters up and you're free to <laughs> go and burn that house. Just let me know how it finished, how it ended. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. And, and thank you for your mission here of uh, having this podcast and, uh, and sharing the information. Thank you. And that's it. Thank you for listening. You've been named the ambassadors of fire science and now go and into the world and do your job. Please inspire young people to fire safety, change their minds over their future choices and bring as many bright minds into the space of fire safety engineering as possible because we need them. And this episode was all about it, why we need them and how they can make a true difference in the world. In terms of the takeaways from this episode, I it was interesting to hear about the fire dynamics in tall residential compartments and how transient evolution of fire changes the environment in the first minutes of the fire. This is something we don't really often consider that much. We often consider the growth of the fire as a gentle event until it reaches flashover. And here Dan has mentioned multiple things that can happen in that time Differences in pressure, changes in the flow paths, even smoke explosions to an extent. So that's really interesting and something we don't really see in our everyday engineering. And maybe we should. That's a potentially challenging but interesting direction to go. And I'm definitely going to dig more into that research. And another takeaway, after the episode, we've spent like five minutes more talking and we've agreed that the, the fire fighters and fire engineers, they love to play with fire and they love to play with water. And that water prop training device is really fun. And if you have a chance ever to, to try play with it, it's, it's a great uh, experience. And uh, actually, it's really an interesting experience to play with, uh, with extinguishing uh, tools and see how you can really apply water to fire, how it changes the fire behavior. It's, it's something very refreshing for a fire engineer to see how fire is being fought against because it gives you a completely different view on how we design passive protection and active protection to allow for that, for that fighting to take place in the buildings. So yeah, thank you for listening to this episode. And next week, next episode, it's going to be on glazing and fire, something we've talked to in today's episode as well. So it's going to be a great follow-up to, to this episode. So if you've enjoyed this talk, you're going to enjoy the next one for sure. See you then next Wednesday. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.